Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over back to the United States to Baltimore, Maryland to catch up with Alexander Brown, or better known as Sandy Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation here. And uh, you, know, you have a very long uh, CV with amazing stops across the board, um, starting, of course, uh, you know, or a lot of people might know you from your days with ESPN here in Asia. And of course, you know, many stops in the United States, One World Sports, uh, and obviously currently sort of in the final rounds with Major League Lacrosse there. So we'll touch on all those things, uh, the stops, uh, clearly lots of it linked to the world of television, broadcasting, and, and we're going to do a deep dive into that world. And then all the other, you know, fun things you kind of did in your career. So I'm sure we'll have plenty of fun reminiscing around, especially, of course, you know, you were here at the same time I was here in Asia and I've been still in Asia, of course. So I'm sure we have some fun stories to compare here. But as we always do, we'll kind of start right where it started. And you came out of uh, university there in Washington uh, in the mid-'80s. And uh, you ended up working with ProSurf, I believe, at the very beginning. Tell us a bit. How do, they, how do you get in there and uh, how do you manage to you know, hang out with Donald and David? Well, it was, uh, it was quite an introduction into the world of sports television. It was uh, not only serendipitous, but uh, certainly by happenstance. Um, I grew up playing a lot of tennis as a junior. Uh, I actually played with Pam Shriver a bit in oh. Interclub. And um, I, my junior and senior in university, ran a tennis club at the beach in Delaware. And one of the owners of the club was Frank DeFord. And Frank was probably one of the greatest sports writers ever in the, here in the United States. Okay. And uh, was he was at Sports Illustrated for many years. And he uh, is a native Baltimorean. And I went to see him before my senior year in college and said, I want to be in the sports business. And, and what do you suggest? And so he put me in touch with a gal named Sarah Kleppinger, now Sarah Fornashari, who again is another Baltimorean who was an, an, an attorney at ProServe. Mm -hmm. And so I went and met with Sarah and uh, we hit it off and told her what I wanted to do. And, and so she, I became her project. And so she organized an internship for me at Christmas right. at ProServe, right. which, you know, for which I uh, ended up working for Joe Steranka who at that time uh, handled all the PR for ProServe. So I interned with Joe for a month. And of course, while I was there, they said to me, you don't want to be managing tennis players. You want to be in television. And I said, yes, I want to be in television. So that's, that's, that's sort of how it all started. And then I uh, met Herb Swan, um, God rest his soul, interned, uh, I'm sorry, I did my internship. Then I had, I don't know, have seven different interviews that spring. And I was also playing Division One lacrosse at that time. Um, and they wanted someone, they wanted to hire somebody. They didn't want to pay very much to go run around the world and, and sell broadcast rights for the properties that they represented at that time and owned. And the ones, the principal rights that they had were the MIPTC Tour, which is a predecessor of the ATP and the NBA. Right. And then some other pro um, product. Anyway, so I was fortunate enough to uh, to get the job, and 
Herb called me one day and said, well, Donald wants to offer you the job personally. So can you come up here and, and, uh, and we can, we can take care of that. And so I drove up from school. I went to school in, in Virginia and, um, met Donald. It happened to be Memorial day weekend, which is a big bank holiday weekend. And, uh, in Washington and, and he was headed to Carling Bassett's wedding. Carling Bassett was a client of ProServe client and she was marrying Robert Seguso, who was another ProServe client that weekend. And so we drove out to National Airport in his Chrysler LeBaron limousine. <laughs> I didn't even know the Chrysler LeBaron made a limousine, but obviously Donald found one. So anyway, so we drove out there and Donald offered me the job and of course, I said yes and what have you. And we get to National. It's an absolute zoo at at, uh, at the airport. And Donald looks at me and says, Sandy, I need you to do me a favor. Wally, who's his driver, is going to get his bags. I need you to drive the limousine around National until Wally comes out from taking my bags in. And so I got in, my, in the limousine and drove the limousine around National Airport, which is the equivalent of driving around the Arc de Triomphe in Paris at rush hour. <laughs> and that was my introduction to ProServe. So, <laughs> I like it. Um, well. So, and, you know, I found I, I was able to get through that part of things unscathed. I graduated from college on Friday and started work on Monday. I got it. So how many years were you with, with uh, ProServe then? Uh, I was there a little over two years, and I worked for Herb and for Dennis Spencer. Oh, uh, and I literally was there about uh, two weeks, and they said gave me, they gave me a plane ticket and said go to Europe and sell tennis. Aside from the fact that when I met Dennis the first time, was in that two week span, and he was down in Dallas, and I walked into his office and we chit chatted at Dennis's. Always been a man. A few words. Dennis is actually one of the nicest guys I can think of in our really industry. He is, right? You, he really is. Yeah, he really is. Absolutely. Oh, one yeah. thing I never forget is I I walked out of his office and he pointed me to the conference table and he said, "You see that stack of varieties, which I'm telling you was probably two feet." He said, "Go learn the television business." So that was that was that was part of my uh, part of my education. Um, but I mean, I, I, you know, the interesting thing about it was, was it was a global job. I mean, I obviously got my introduction to the NBA and obviously spent a lot of time on the tennis business pro serve at the time. I mean, we had in the management side of the house with all of the NBA players that we had, which at that time were, you know, Michael Jordan and James Worthy, Patrick Ewing. We had four out of the five in top, uh, of the top five in um, the ATP, Payne Stewart, Boomer Sice. And so we had a really robust management business. We owned a bunch of tennis tournaments. You know, we had our relationship with the NBA and the ATP or the MIPG. Well, you know, ProServe uh, was hot stuff right, you know, in those times, right? I mean, it was really IMG and, and them who were sort of competing right at the highest level well, there. It's really, it was IMG Advantage, which, as you know, was part right. of ProServe until 1980, and then obviously us. But but I um, I also got a chance to spend a lot of time with Peter Smith, uh, another petition in our business, and again, God rest his soul. But And I've, I've dealt with Peter for years after that. But... Obviously, those relationships were forged at that time, and 
and obviously with many others, but it was a, it was a very interesting time to be there. There's no question about it. And the other thing I was thinking was that we, and there was no Sportel, right. so we all went to Not MIP yet. and MIP, and the likes of Umberto Gandini and Mark Riley and uh, Bill Ward and Laura Cottrell and George Black and Carl Bassani and Andrea Bassani. I mean, we'd all get together at these at MIP and MIPCOM, and 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 uh, and that's where it all started. The sort of the idea of having our own show, yeah. but it was. Uh, I mean, it was. Those were very interesting times, and the television business was really changing from many networks internationally that were state-owned were finally becoming more commercial, and that was even before satellite right. became the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're really there in the early, early days now. So in, in the 90, then I guess 1990 is uh, you made the switch uh, for a couple of years to the NBA, um, assuming that came out of the relationship, like you said, which ProSoft had with the NBA, or how did that sort of come about? Yeah, I mean, I, I left ProServe to go work for Drexel Burnham because I was really trying to figure out whether I wanted to be in the sports business for the rest of my life. And I went to Drexel, and which was obviously a very interesting time to be there. And um, uh, in the late 80s, they started to go down the chutes. And then the NBA decided they wanted to, to basically bring all their rights in-house. And uh, I was working directly with Ed Desser um, at the uh, NBA when I was at ProServe. And so he called me and said, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, absolutely. And that was, that was, uh, again, very, very fortuitous. So my role there was to oversee all the, the league's international television inter interests. And, um, you know, I guess a better byproduct of that was, um, developing my relationship with David Stern. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have to say that, uh, it was, um, I mean, he, Like there, there are many people, many of us that have had this experience with him. But I mean, I, I he was a he was a big mentor of mine professionally and personally, and and you know I just I loved him. He was a he was a great great individual, and um, you know I have to say that I guess I was there again probably I don't know two weeks, and and MIP was upon us, and I was about to leave to go to MIP that night. And so he asked me to come to his office that afternoon, and I sat with him literally for two hours, just the two of us in his office. And he basically, you know, preached the world according to David Stern. Mm -hmm. Okay. And was laid out all of his expectations and so forth. But I, I, I mean, those are two hours of my life that I will never forget. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely, absolutely fabulous. Amazing. How old were you at the time? I mean, you obviously looks you, know, you must still be pretty quite young at that time, right? Yeah, I, I was 20, I was 20, uh, 26. Right. Yeah. Well, amazing. Uh, actually, the, today that we're le later, we're releasing the podcast with Scott Levy, who obviously is, you know, spent more than two decades with the NBA um, and I think came a little bit after you there, uh, sort of to take on the role of international NBA business, uh, TV business as well. And he, he's talking similarly about, of course, how international the business in television was one of sort of uh, David uh, David Stern's sort of pet project, right? He really wanted to push this and he saw the huge opportunity. So when you were working there for those couple of years, what was it, you know, which territory were you guys already going after? Was it China already on the radar or, or what was sort of your remit? Well, my remit was everything. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I ran the whole thing. And I mean, I, I can remember it, going back to my days at ProServe when, 
the NBA op- occupied one corner of one floor on an Olympic Tower. And now it's obviously grown like a weed, but I mean, we were there really at the outset. And um, uh, he had, I guess, when I joined ProServe, he'd only been commissioner for a year. But you're right, it was obviously a very important priority for him. And, um, uh, but we, we really try to circumnavigate the globe in terms of trying to get as many deals as we possibly could get done. And, um, and obviously we were able to create a, a series of packages that were customized for different parts of the world. And, and so my relationships that I had developed at ProServe um, served me well in terms of, of being able to get things done uh, with the NBA. And obviously China, as you correctly point out, was a, you know, was a big priority. And I did visit uh, CCT with David, and of course we got we were over there for the launch of our we opening our season in Tokyo, and so he and I went to see CCTV, okay. and lined this meeting up with a guy named uh, Lee Chuang, who was an international guy at CCTV, and of course we get to the guardhouse, and they have no record of of uh, of the. <laughs> I've had that before, yes. You can only imagine where my heart was at that particular time. And Stern looked over at me, and I'll never forget that look. And he loved to rib me about that till the day he died. Um, but anyway, they, they, you know, the guy did find the meeting on the schedule, whatever. We went in and we did our thing. But it was, uh, you know, it was a very interesting. <laughs> it was a very interesting uh, experience. Uh, uh, that is really, really the early days. There. I love it. Now, and I will also tell you that one, you know, look, I, I, there are a couple of things that I think really are really important when you think about David and, and uh, I mean, the foundational principles that he had in terms of how you handle staff and how you look at various situations were, I mean, they, they've stuck with me my entire career. And I think he, he had an unrelenting work ethic and he expected you know, nothing less of any of us. And more to the point, he was really all about execution. But his mantra to us was basically, he's going to give us all the tools that we needed uh, to do our job, whether it's research or conferences or, you know, whatever. But he expected that we were going to know more about our business than anybody else. Mm. And I had one situation, I was sitting in my office and and, uh, David walks by my office and he pokes his head in and he goes, Brown, how many television households are there in Uzbekistan? <laughs> right. And, and I and I had to have the answer, and I did. And I, I can tell you just sort of a segue to, to something else. I mean, the number of meetings that I was in uh, with him, and uh, there are many others that can share this, where someone gave him an answer to a question that was not well thought out, and they got crucified. Right. And I said to myself, I am never going to be that person. <laughs> I never was. Never. But, but he was, uh, he was, he always asked, he always asked a question that you didn't have the answer to. And um, which, to the point I made earlier, um, it was incumbent upon us to, to basically read and know our business better than anybody else. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and that was something. So that, that, that for sure came across in Scott's uh, when I was talking to him about it as well. Um, so yeah, that that seems to be. I've, I've never met David unfortunately, but uh, sounds like a, some amazing learning there. Now, again, the the obvious question then is: so 
you know, you've you've had a good start here, right? Pro Surf NBA that looks good on everyone's CV. Uh, but how on earth do you get into how do you get to Asia and become uh, eventually the managing director for ESPN Star Sports or ESPN Asia first before it became obviously Star Sports? Uh, how do you make that jump? Uh, talk, talk us through that. Well, obviously our circles are not big, so we travel and we when we go to these conferences and we travel in packs. And the other thing is ESPN was a client of ours, mm -hmm. and. Andy Brain was building the ESPN business, the international business at the time. So I've, I've had a lot of interaction with those guys. And as part of their expansion strategy, they're, they're looking at Asia. Interestingly enough, I had been offered a job when I was a pro serve to go to Hong Kong with IMG, which I didn't do. But I'd always had a fascination about Asia. And it was a big step up. I mean, I was 28 at the time, and they wanted me to send me out there to basically plant the flag and launch the business. And I remember when I went in to see, this is just sort of another Stern story, but I went in to see David and tell him about this. And um, he asked me how much they were going to pay it, pay me. And I said, I told him. And so next thing you know, when I finally got my offer, it was, it was higher than uh, what I had was originally told it was going to be. And And I know he went to bat and basically called Bornstein and said, "You're not, you're not paying this guy enough money." So, oh, wow. okay. so he was, uh, he was always trying to do my my bidding for me. But, uh, but it was a great opportunity, and I, I, I will always um, be grateful to to Herb Granath and Steve and Andy Brain for having uh, basically having the confidence in me to do this. The one one thing I will just say about the NBA, just to finish this up, is I mean, I, I always. I liken it to a little bit like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Right. And I think Adam has done a really good job of, of preserving that legacy at the NBA. And you always are family there. And um, and you know, it was just a great. Even though I wasn't there very long, it was a great. It was a great experience. Um, so anyway, I, so I um, going to going to uh, this was uh, ESPN Asia when you went first there. You went to Hong Kong, was it? That that was their setup, or where they were based. So I went out there with, um, I started, I guess, in February, and I um, literally, the two days after I started, Andy Brain and I went to Hong Kong to this AIC conference, which was literally the start of the cable, it was the birth of the cable industry in Asia. Right. Everybody and their brother was there. Uh, Ted Turner was there, John Malone was there, I don't think Rupert was there, but it was a who's who from every international executive at every US network They were all there, and that coincided with the launch of a an Indonesian satellite called Palapa, mm -hmm. which at that time the only bird over Asia was in, was an Inosat bird, which necessitated 12 meter dishes. And what Palapa was able to do was it was able to create it was that to allow for four meter dishes, so you could basically have a backyard dish. And then you'd be able to create your own cable system, and that's right. it really a cottage industry at that time. Yep. And all the other thing that happened was that there was a banker in Indonesia named Peter Gontha who was close to the Suharto family who wanted to take advantage of all the dishes in Indonesia that were looking at Palapa, right. which is the satellite set right over Indonesia. And he wanted to launch a DTH business, and he wanted – a bunch of the U.S. networks, and that was us, HBO, uh, CNN, 
and Discovery, and then we added in TVB. So that was the Gang of Five. Mm-hmm. You may now that was. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't pan out the way that everyone thought it was, but it was a. Um, but that's what got us all out there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, I arrived in Asia later part of '94, so you, this is a couple of years before. We're in '92 here. Um, which, as you said, that was truly the birthday of uh, of TV, you know, I guess satellite and and TV in Asia in that sense. Um, now let's let's have a look at okay. So you guys are launching a channel. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of logistics on that, and well, well, maybe we won't go into that. But let's talk a bit about content. What is it? What you guys first brought into Asia? What was the ESPN? What was ESPN Asia at that time about? Well, we obviously had we had a lot of international content, not necessarily content for Asia, um, but we had content that which was live. So we we carried the NBA, and we you know obviously we carried baseball, and we carried the NFL, and we had IndyCar and so forth. And the other thing we had was the Premier League. We had the Monday night games of the Premier League. All right. Okay. Um, I have to say that the Premier League was a significant driver of value uh, for us out there, um, even if we only had one match. But ultimately, as we went down the road at um, and created ESS, um, a number of the local cable operators went and did deals with the EPL directly because they knew that was going to drive drive. Uh, that, that was a huge driver. And, well, we'll talk a bit more about it. I'm cl- definitely, when we get to ESS. Uh, now, uh, two questions uh, come to mind. Number one is, do you still know the number, what you guys were paying for that one match for for uh, Premier League, just in comparison where it obviously is now? No, I don't remember what the number uh, was. Okay. No. Well, uh, now, on in terms of the footprint, right, as you said, you know, there wasn't really a, a satellite uh, structure yet uh, fully in place. So what was it, what were you really covering? What was Asia for okay. you at that time? So Asia was everything except South Asia. At that point, and okay. um, and so we had pre-existing joint ventures in Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and then we had our presence in in Southeast Asia. So obviously, the two Southeast Asia and Greater China, with the exception of China, which I'll get to that in a second. Mm. But we could cover the Pacific with our with Intelsat. We had a we had space on the Intelsat bird, and then we obviously had a transponder on Palapa. In order for us to get to India, and by the way, we could also get to, well, we could get to India and to the rest of China through Pan Amsat. So we then we took, uh, we took, we took space on Pan Amsat. But, and but so it, that, you only had that, one channel, right? It's just one dedicated feed, right? It's not, you had multiple feeds already. At that point, at that point, we had one trunk feed that basically did everything else. Now, we were on the, on the Intelsat bird, we had our basically our 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 trunk feed, and then on Palapa we were able to do some level of customization on that uh, on that. So we were able to get all of those at that point, and everything was being was being um, was coming out of Bristol. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, let's talk a bit about. Well, you know, let, let, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on on India maybe later. Um, China, as you mentioned. Um, of course, always had this wall garden, and basically no one really got it. You know, not many people really got in there, uh, include even sports, as maybe 
unpolitical as it even is, right? But it was, you know, it was always an area which was just shut down for just about everyone. So I guess that you guys had the same issue there or how, how what, what sort of structures you managed to, were able to do in China? Well, it's actually very interesting. So when I went out there, I was me, myself, and I in a business center in Admiralty in Hong Kong. Mm. And I started off in, a, in Admiralty, in the Admiralty Business Center, and then then I started to hire a few people, and we moved over to Hong Kong Telecom, where ABC had a relationship, and we had a basically a big conference room there. And then we moved to Citicorp Center in Causeway Bay, and that was our office in, in Hong Kong, and, and we were able to populate that pretty well. Uh, One key hire that I made was a guy named Simon Yu uh, from TVB, who worked for SK Fung. And Simon almost single-handedly navigated the whole China business for us. And not only did he have great relationships, but he was very creative in getting deal and getting deals done. And we were we were so successful that we were able to get deals done in basically every province with the exception of two. And um, and there there are some facets to this that were very interesting. I mean, certainly we we did not suffer the same issues that some of the news networks did, like CNN. And by the way, we were only all of us only supposed to be in um, hotels. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. But we're sports, mm-hmm. and every cable operator wanted us. Right. And we didn't really. I mean, this comes. We'll talk about this later in terms of the ARPU. But we were we were able to get paid. But the the deal structure was very interesting because at that point, every cable operator is without question in terms of every deal that we we did. Every cable operator incorporated into the deal a trip out of China. They all wanted to travel. <laughs> right. Okay. So. We had to facilitate a trip for every cable, you know, for every the head of the, you know, for probably two people at every every one of these these uh, cable um, stations. Yeah. Well, and you got a lot of stations in China, <laughs> a lot of provinces. We would take them to MIP. We took them to Las Vegas. I mean, I'll never forget. We took them to Vegas, and we gave each of them a hundred bucks to go do what they wanted to do. I mean, they thought they were in heaven. <laughs> took them to happy, basically, is it? And, but Simon organized all this, and I give Herb and Steve a lot of credit for giving us, and Andy, obviously, for giving us the latitude to do all this stuff. But this, these are the kind, this is the kind of creativity that, you know, we needed to, to have to be able to get these deals done, and it allowed us to be able to get carriage in all these systems. Right. And the other thing is Simon did a great job of working with SARFT, Madame Chaiwa was the uh, gallop at SARF, who was our liaison, and she was very supportive of what we did. And, you know, we had one situation, I'll, I'll say this, where I think we got taken down for 24 hours because there was a scene in Domestic Sports Center, which was uh, probably five seconds of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. Oh, well, okay. Somebody, somebody in the ministry saw it. So we got slapped on the wrist like we all like everyone else did, but that was the only time that we got taken down. Hmm. Um, but we, we it was the other thing that was interesting at that time was that we had not yet been acquired by Disney, and they were trying to do everything they could to get carriage, and it annoyed them no end that we were able, that we were able to get carriage in as many places as we were, and they weren't. Right, and right. so ultimately, they actually they. <laughs> They tried to get us taken off at one point, but uh, you know, soon thereafter, we ended up merging with them, and or they bought us, I should say, and then um, and uh, we're all on the same team. So, so very when, interesting. 
when so let's jump a bit a bit up the you know a couple of years in into the future here so we're in the mid 90s now um and again by that time already in asia too and and i do remember this you know quite well there was huge rivalry of course between espn's asia and then what was called star sports asia or star sports uh, you know, which is Murdoch um, and, and that side of the family there. Um, we all like that. We were already in the TV business at that time as well. We were already selling TV rights, WWE and a few other things. So it was good for us. Um, and then you guys decided let's merge this thing because, you know, maybe it made some sense um, at a top level. Talk us through that because obviously you're right in the middle of it. You know, you, you, you obviously become the managing director then of the merger, the merging entity. For the next several years, um, yeah, just explain that a bit. You know, how do we get two big giants, which are on paper fierce rivals, probably in many parts of the world, uh, deciding, okay, let's go do this together? Well, let, let me just take a step back before I do that. I mean, we, we, as I mentioned earlier, we were sending everything out of Bristol, which our good friend Bernard Stewart was yeah. had a lot to do, and um, so we cut a deal with the Singaporean government to, ba to build a facility in Singapore, which also allowed us to be able to get uplinking out of there because Hong Kong Telecom was making it absolutely prohibitive for us to do that. So we basically created our own facility, and that allowed us to be really customized uh, for the region. Mm -hmm. In 1993, Star, or Rupert Murdoch purchased Star, and um, by 94, things were really moving down the track in terms of their business, which really was a function of having two free-to-air feeds, one over China and one over India. And that didn't do any of us that were trying to sell product any good because they're free and we were not. And um, Herb Granath was actually on a plane to go to London and ended up seeing Rupert on the plane. And they sat together and started talking about things and basically agreed that the competition in Asia was not doing anybody any good and that we should think about a merger. And, um, and so that's how it all, that's how it all started. Okay. And we, there was a lot of work that went into it. We, we called it, we called it project Yalta. It was the code name. Okay. Uh, okay. I, this is a great story. We, as part and parcel of all this, we had agreed that we were not with Star and ESPN agreed we were not going to be, going to be acquiring any content other than what we had currently. And before this conversation with, with Star began, we had gone well down the track with CSI about acquiring or renewing a very sizable cricket package, which covered probably five different boards. Mm -hmm. And Dave Zucker and I, who I work very closely with, were in Australia, I guess it was probably uh, September or October of 96. And um, we were down there for uh, the Australian India was playing Australia, and so we were there to also meet Jim Fitzmaurice from CSI to close the deal. And so we're we're sitting in the region in in Sydney having this conversation, and and Zucker looked at him and said, "Well, we're not going to bid. We decided we're not going to bid." And he went absolutely ballistic. And I, I had no idea any of this. Was, I thought we were going to we agreed we we're going to put our offer on the table, and then David pulls that one out. And Fitzmaurice, the reason he went nuts was because of the fact that he had already knew that Gary Davey wasn't going to bid on the star side. Mm -hmm. So he, is just, he was just left there hanging in the wind. It was absolutely classic. So we walked out of the meeting and I looked at Zucker. I said, can you just tell me what that was all about? He said, well, let's talk about it over dinner. 
So he and I went to dinner and then he filled me in on all the things that were going on with the, with the merger. And the reason that he couldn't tell me is because I knew not, nothing of what was going on is because they wanted me to run it. Mm-hmm. So that's when he, that's when he said, look, you know, we're, we're, this is what's going on. You know, we, we want you to run the thing. And so after that, then we, all the management teams got together and we sat down and started taking the thing apart and trying to put everyone together and, you know, it was it was quite an exercise, and I, I have to say, I mean, the amount of financial rigor that went into this thing was was really amazing. I mean, you know, we did our five year plan, we did our budgets. I mean, I was used to all the stuff through ESPN. I can I don't think the star guys were as used to it, but Bruce Churchill came in from from News Corp to basically take over all the stuff at Star in terms of as this, in his CEO role, and he was. He and David basically ran the joint venture at the shareholder level, and they were awesome. And I, I absolutely, I loved working for those guys. They were, it was, you know, for all of the the fact that you've got two strange bedfellows that mm. have come together to create this thing, and with with cultures and philosophies that are diametrically opposed. I have to say, out of all the joint ventures that I have been associated with, it was one that worked the best. Because everyone was was completely focused on making this thing work. And I, of course, as you mentioned earlier, had the task of being the first managing director. And it was not only putting these two organizations together, but it was taking a business that on a combined basis, it was losing $125 million and trying to get that to break even. Right, right. And, and I think last time you mentioned you, you managed to do that. How many years did it take to get there? Yeah, we, we did it over four years right, okay. um, and uh, just, yeah, just about four years. And I mean, look, the the star people were absolutely, I mean, look, Rick Dovey is, I mean, he was my successor as a very good friend of mine. I mean, right. it was just, it, we, we took the best of the best and put everybody together and everyone just sort of got on with it. It was, it, it really was, I mean, I was funny yesterday, I was looking back at all the, some photos that I have of all of the, our exploits over the years and the things that we've done and it was just, it was incredible. And um, sorry that it's those businesses are no longer still in existence, but it was uh, certainly probably the most provocative media merger of its time. And, um, you know, it was great to be a part of it. Yeah. And, and let's talk a bit about it for a minute. But uh, before we get there, let, you know, this is this whole baby was called ESPN Star Sports or ESS, as we all called it in Asia. Um you know, so again, before we get into, you know, and I, we jump up way ahead, of course, uh, because it was just, you know, a year or two ago when it when it was all shut down. Um, you know, let's talk a bit about at that time. Now you have two footprints, two groups. Um, you have different channels. You, you guys doing some, re, you're doing a bunch of rebranding because obviously the channels have end up having similar names. Um, just talk a bit about that. Um, you know, how did that work? Um, and, you know, what did, as you said, what eventually did it do the bottom line? Not just it took competition out, but I guess you were, again, you had a broader portfolio and on the back of it, I guess you were, you are the dominant player in Asia at that moment in time, um, you know, at that time, I think the local brought, let's say, the Astros of the world or Singapore Telco, they weren't really competing yet in that sense, right? They were just customers in most cases. So just just talk about, well, about that. It was interesting. I mean, obviously, both from the distribution and the acquisition side, you know, from the acquisition piece, I mean, I can tell you going to Sportel, and uh, I'm sure when this deal was announced as Bill Sanders of the world and the Mark Mascarinas is their faces just um, yeah well, most of us did drop it. yeah I mean, <laughs> exactly but uh, 
And then, of course, we obviously had to be careful. We couldn't go in and basically say, okay, fine, your rate's now five bucks a month. You know, all that kind of thing went to any of our distributors. But we obviously did what we had to do to be able to, I mean, we had a lot of rights we didn't need. We cut a lot of cost out of the business. There's a big catalyst out of all this called India, which I'll just talk, touch on in a second. You know, we had, obviously, our feeds were, were pay and stars were not. And we knew we weren't going to be able to get carriage for star in, in, in China in any way, shape, or form, because obviously the comment that Rupert had made, you know, back in the yeah, back in the hot water with the Chinese. And we just knew that we were not going to get we were not going to get carriage for star sports. However, in terms of India, we knew the only way to make it work was that we had to be able to flip the switch. Now, we had already launched our business in India uh, with the Modi's. And this is actually a very interesting story. We we got in bed with the Modi's. At that time, there were probably 50,000 cable operators in India, and we knew we needed a partner on the ground to help us get our business launched. Mm-hmm. We went and we bought the rights of the BCCI exclusively, right. which obviously, as you know, went, it went Indian, yeah, Indian cricket. and we ended up cutting a deal with them so that Dordashan had a piece of it. I also tell you that News Corp, unbeknownst to us, happened to put Roddy Basu, who was the head of Dordashan, on their board, and uh, I had to go see Basu twice, you know, as part of this exercise to cut a deal with them. And he made me sit outside of his office for eight hours. <laughs> so when, when the first ESS board meeting and Basu's on the other side of the table, I had is everything I could do to keep the ESPN guys from reaching across the table to wring his neck. But the one thing that was very helpful to us in terms of the Modi's were that they also had the Philip Morris distributorship in India. Mm-hmm. So they had guys riding around on bicycles selling sticks of cigarettes. Right. And these are the guys that we used to collect money from the cable operators. All right. Oh. You know, cable, cable operators in India is a whole nother level. I mean, we can spend a whole podcast on this. Yeah. I mean, there, but there's no way we ever would have been able to launch our business. I mean, look, you, you could have taken any of the other industrial houses of Tata or Reliance or whatever. But, you know, the Modi's, they had this infrastructure that um, and the will to do it. And, you know, for you know, a period of time, it worked out perfectly. Right. And, I got to uh, throw a funny story in here. We took a couple of WWE wrestlers, including Big Show, which is the biggest guy that we had at that time, as in size-wise. Right? We took him on a cable to a cable operator tour across India, and you can't believe, you know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? This cable is not a cable operator, as in when you think of it from the United States, which has a nice building somewhere on a proper street, right? This is a house somewhere in the middle of nowhere with a thousand cables coming off the roof, going into across the entire neighborhood, connecting whatever, two million people, right? That was the kind of cable operators we were we were visiting there, which they which the local partner there, um, uh, you know, our t- 10 sports or touch TV at that time, you know, Chris McDonald, I'm sure you know him too. Um, you know, took us though, and it was unbelievable. I mean, all of us, we just fell off our chairs when we arrived at these places. So, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to get people to visualize when we say cable operators. If you're in the Western world, you probably think of a nice, big, fancy office. You know, that's not really what India cable operators are. <laughs> right? No, sure. no, and I listen, Chris was my right hand for the you know, good bit of the time that I was there, and we spent a lot of time in India. Uh, of course, I mean, I'm yeah. in Bombay, and you go to an apartment building, and to your point, it's like just 
you know, it's just a big, you think you're in the middle of a big ball of spaghetti with <laughs> all these fires going all over the place. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, so interestingly enough, so we, we ended up, we flipped the switch for star, um, with a cricket match that happened to be in India. And we also had a situation at the same time where I think we had incorporated a rate hike for ESPN for whatever reason. Well, Menasani, who ran our business at the time there, um, they were in Bombay and they were surrounded by the Shiv Sena, which is a big political party in uh, Maharashtra, also owned a bunch of cable systems. And so these guys basically surrounded our office with jeeps with machine guns and started shooting them off to try to scare our guys and with this rate hike and i'm on the phone with manu these guys are huddled in the office and i can hear all this stuff going on in the, it was unbelievable but that that's the wild west i mean that's what we're dealing with <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah no, no, I mean, look, I've, I've I had three offices in India, a fairly large team there for many years, and I, I loved the trips there, but there were always, something always went wrong, and, and it was, you know, yeah, you managed chaos constantly, that's for sure, and I have no doubt. You know, obviously, you know, Star, Star TV or Star Sports is still very successful in India, and it's, you know, I'm sure it was always a bit of the crown jewel. Uh, let's talk a bit about the numbers here, um, you know, breaking, getting from $125 million losses to break even, that obviously means not just shrinking costs, but, uh, you know, obviously generating more revenue. What was the probably the most profitable part of the business if you segment it down into, you know, regions or, or particular countries? Well, I mean, this also goes to sort of the whole ARPU discussion. I mean, and and I think it's there's there are lessons to be learned as we think about sort of what's happening currently uh, with a lot of these streaming businesses, whether it's Disney or Netflix or whatever. I mean, it really is all about it's the blend. Mm. So, you know, we were getting a dollar a sub at that time. Mm. Um, was not, which wasn't too far off what was, what was being garnered in the States for Southeast Asia, for the more mature market, shall we say. Mm. Also, you have to look at that against retail rate. What's your retail rate? What can they you know, what can they stomach? Correct. And the other issue, of course, we had to deal with is, you know, had the likes of HBO, which, I mean, we were very, you know, we could provide volume discounts and all that kind of stuff. HBO wasn't doing any of that. And they, that was always a big bone of contention with us, all of us, with the movie channels in terms of their, and I understand they, you know, they needed to have a bigger number, but, you know, we all, when we think about China, it was a penny a sub. And when you think about India, it was five cents a sub. We used to say it was, you can, it's less than the price of a thumbs up, which is sort of the equivalent of Coke in India. So, Mate, I mean, obviously it's yeah, a, that's a huge difference, right? It's a numbers game, but you're, you're dealing with a, a very, you're dealing, dealing with, a, you know, a lot of variables in terms of pricing in, in each one of these markets. So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the biggest ARPU came out of Southeast Asia and uh, and Greater China, ex-China, which means Taiwan. And you also had a situation where these cable subs were increasing rapidly because the business, those businesses, as I said earlier, that was a cottage industry and really became a lot more mature in a very, very uh, short period of time. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Now, that before, let, let's kind of wrap it up because we have plenty more other things we want to cover uh, on of your career here, obviously, and I'm sure plenty of other great stories there. Um, but while we, before we move on from there, what's your take on 
you know, obviously ESPN now at the final stage, uh, which had bought over um, the, the whole block again, and it and you know it was no longer that joint venture. Um, after a few years, them taking it over finally, and this is Disney now, of course, uh, shutting the whole thing down. Um, and this is really uh, whatever it's uh, you know somewhat just I think before uh, COVID or around that time here. So it is very recent still. Um, what's your reading? Well, we from a distance would look at it and saying, you know, when you since you were part of launching it, what didn't happen or what changed? Maybe you know either one of those. Look, I, I think I think every business has to operate in its own manner, and obviously where where their priorities are, where where they're spending their money, and where they're getting the you know where they're getting the most bang for their buck. I always like to say that when someone buys a set of rights, beauty is always in the eye of the beholder. And which mean, which is to say that on a P&L basis, it may not make sense, but strategically it may make sense. And that was exactly the case when we bought the BCCI rights. I mean, obviously there was no, <laughs> there was just an L because we had no revenue. Right. And, and we did, we, you know, we did our best to try to handicap it, but you know, it was, it was clearly the catalyst that got us on the ground there. So I, I would just say that I think they're, they are, Every business has to look at markets where they think there's the greatest amount of upside and where they are putting their capital. And certainly India is, a, is an important market for them, given what they're looking at now, especially with what their streaming goals are to get to 260 million subs. You know, obviously they have here in the next week or so a decision to make on this IPL deal, which is a, which is not going to be inexpensive, to say yeah. the least. So, look, I'm... All I can say is, is that it was, I mean, every company goes through different phases of their business and this is the decision they made and, and um, they're not, they're also not going to be in a situation from a television perspective where they're going to be making a lot of money on a subscription basis out of China. That still has not changed. Yep. So they're, they're putting their energies where they think they're going to get their best return. And, sure. you know, yeah, you, and, and like I said, I mean, it, it obviously left a huge hole um, in the sports, I guess, uh, spectrum here in, in Asia, in South, especially Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, it's slowly being filled by a few new players um, who taken over some of the rights and, you know, doing the, doing a good job now getting back in there. Of course, the, the local players now, the local broadcast, you know, uh, uh, pay TV operators have kind of taken up some of the slack and just creating their own channels, etc. So, uh, yeah, as usual, sports will come out of it. And I haven't seen so much uh, new numbers and, you know, why everyone, I'm assuming everyone took some hits, some here and there. Um, but yeah, you know, life goes on. But uh, it was a huge shock, of course. Uh, you know, but, as I said, uh, but let's come back to to your part of the story here. So you know, now you've been in in the world of of sports for many, for several years here. Uh, helped set up ESPN Star at the end, um, and all of a sudden you and CNBC Asia, which is you know the big giant, of course, but it's a completely different industry. It's, you know, business news, etc. How did you make that shift, I mean, or where did that come from? Where is what sort of uh, what what triggered that? I had said to ESPN that I was ready to come home after ten years, and um, so so George Bodenheimer offered me a job back in New York, and it was working for somebody that I wasn't particularly fond of, and I decided not to stay and decided to okay. go and do my own thing, and so I then uh, became CEO of a sports technology company out of Auckland, New Zealand called Virtual Spectator, which is early stage 
and unfortunately it crashed and burned. And then CNBC asked me to go back to Asia to run that business. And I, I looked at that, I obviously had my experience at Drexel and uh, it was GE, you know, again, it was another joint venture between GE and Dow Jones. And so I figured, well, this is a good opportunity to do something a little different, you know, here again to see if this is something that I might like doing. So anyway, so I went out there. I mean, it was, I really enjoyed it for a lot of reasons. There were some other reasons that I didn't enjoy it, but, but I enjoyed it because the reasons I did enjoy it were around the fact that GE, I, I mean, I, I learned so much being part of that culture and Jack Welch at the time was chairman and you know, I just, I drank the Kool-Aid and I think a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the um, people have their own views about GE and NBC and everything else. But I think when you run a business, there are a lot of principles that come out of that culture that I think make a lot of sense. And I, yeah, I, I strive to. Well, I read his book and uh, I absolutely, there's so, some, some good stuff in there. I think one thing I will say is, look, business news is not sports. It's a lot more difficult to run that business when you're not part of a bundle. You know, business news can't stand on its own like sports can. You know, one of the things that we did do, created a joint venture with Shanghai Media Group with Li Gong, which is the first one in China. We also brought in Alibaba as a big sponsor of our Asian Business Leader Awards. So I spent a lot of time with Jack Ma, getting a chance to see what Alibaba was on the, on the ground floor. But anyway, I was out there for five years with them, and uh, and then it really was time to come home after 15 years. And um, I came back. 15 years in the, the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, but, you know, it's, oh God. The relationships that I developed, the people that I worked with, and look, at the end of the day, Marcus, that's the bottom line is it's the people you work with. I mean, that, you know, what, you asked me, okay, what are the, some of the highs you've had in your career? It's, it's really the people. I am so fortunate uh, to work with great people, and, and that's really what gets me out of bed every day. And uh, it's, that's been, a, that's been a, you know, a lot of fun. And, you know, the Barry Ronas of the world and the Chris McDonald's and the Rick Dovey's and the Simon Hughes and, um, and so forth, uh, you know, while I was in Asia, Dave Zucker and Bruce Churchill, and Stern, obviously, and Bornstein. I mean, just, just a great group. And, and the other thing I would say, just from an ESPN perspective, you know, we talk about financial rigor and discipline. I mean, Chris Dreesen is the CFO of ESPN. She was just awesome. And and David Paul, who's, uh, you know, our attorney, who's in the general counsel to ESPN, who actually hired at, at MLL um, to do some work for us. I mean, as a young person trying to, because you're out there and you're in your late 20s and your early 30s and you're still trying to figure all of this stuff out. Uh, you're, I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> But to be able to have that level of support and to be able to have people like that to work with you and to really give you guidance and so forth is, you know, it just, it means everything. And I think that had a lot to do with us being as effective as we were. Well, no, no doubt. Now I want to jump a little bit here. Also, we'll watch our time here um, and, and jump straight into Univision. Um, you know, there's a couple of stops in there in between, but, uh, you know, I think it's a good segment, you know, ESPN, Star Sports, CNBC, and here comes Univision. Again, big player, but totally different part of the world. Um, I believe you were president of sports there. So again, let's talk a bit about it and, and your experience there being in, now involved with, I guess, the largest um, Hispanic 
uh, Hispanic-focused uh, platform in the U.S. at that time, right? Uh, I'm assuming there maybe they still are, um, but at least so what I what do I remember from them? So talk about that a bit. Well, I mean, I was recruited to they they wanted to launch a domestic cable dedicated sports channel, and so I was recruited All right. to to basically build that, create it, which I did, and I called. Uh, uh, at that time, Joe Yuba was the was the CEO, and sadly, he was only there for three months. You know, he, he left after I guess in March. I, I came in in December, and um, and then Randy Falco ended up taking over. But um, I called Jeff Mason, who was one of my close friends, and helped me. He was at ESPN with me, and I basically said, "Okay, here's my charge. I need I need I need help with someone to help me build a broadcast facility." To we're going to create a, our own version of Sports Center. You know, we need set designers and a bit, 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 all this. So Mason basically said, you need to call A, B, C, D, and F. And he was just spot on. And then I hired David Neal to be my executive producer, who was the executive producer at uh, NBC Sports. And then I also hired Eric Conrad, who just left Univision, to basically manage all, all of our programming. So we got it up in record time. Uh, obviously, it's a very interesting dynamic. It was an interesting dynamic in Univision at that point. With you had four private equity firms plus Televisa as shareholders, and um, you know you're also in a situation where they had done a leverage buyout at a very big number, and they're trying to figure out how they can get back to that number so they can sell it. But uh, in any event, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, very unique culture to say the least. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we got it done, and you know, Televisa basically they were the they were the 900 pound gorilla and decided they wanted to have their own uh, one of their own people sort of run sports, and that I guess happened sort of a year and a half, almost two years after I got there. And, and now again, you know, what, what this you know when we talk about the Hispanic market clearly, I mean, it's obvious, you know, what sort of content, I guess, uh, would be focused, you know, to some degree, I guess, football, um, soccer from other parts of the world or from, you know, other Latin American countries, um, maybe boxing, et cetera. Is that sort of what, what you go around after or what was it? What was the remit? The, the Lija Mexicana was, um, was obviously a critical catalyst in all of that. We also had our deal with the MLS, which I'll talk about in a second. We had, we had the last World Cup. We had yeah, all the okay. World Cups. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Okay. We had CONCACAF. We didn't have Common Bowl because our, our our competitor in that space is obviously Telemundo, which is part of uh, part of NBC. But we one of the things that, about having David in there was okay. Well, how do we try to the the there is no uh, more discerning consumer of football than the Hispanic consumer. And so how do we create create something that's more akin to the U.S. market? And, and this is one of the issues that coverage at Univision had always been, well, this is how people watch these games and you know watch all the stuff in Mexico. And we, that was where we're trying to turn the tide to basically try to incorporate more production value that you would see on, a, on an NFL broadcast. Hmm. So – one day I went over to see Garber, went over there, David Neal and I went over and we basically look, our, our, what we want to do is we want to bring the action off the pitch into the living room. And we wanted to have cameras in different places and mics and all this stuff. And we thought we might be able to get that done with the MLS. Unfortunately, FIFA has got fairly arcane 
rules about all of that stuff, and we're trying to get a World Cup here. So they weren't as amenable to making a lot of those changes. I think they have incorporated a bunch more of them now. But at the end of the day, it's trying to, to give the viewer the best experience possible and through the use of audio. And one of the benefits I had at ESS was that I had David Hill. So I had Mason and David Hill, who were longtime friends and absolutely two of the best people in the history of production in the world of sports television as my guide. And that's one of Hilly's great attributes is his use of audio. And I think that's even today, this is what viewers want. They want to hear what the players are saying. They want to hear what the referees are saying. And this is one of the dynamics you have to deal with in the international world of sports is that different federations have different ways of dealing with things where less is more. And so FIFA and F1 for a long time were in the same boat and really trying to, you know, put fence around a lot of that. So anyway, um, try, as we, try as we we might have, but I, I'm, sad, I'm happy to say I think, you know, a lot of that's changed at this point. Right? All right, let's talk one world sport because it kind of brings a little bit back to Asia. Um, if I understood it correctly, you shared with me that Seamus O'Brien was one of the, the founders or main man maybe behind the venture, who was interesting enough, the gentleman who brought me to Asia in 1994. Seamus is the guy who hired me when I first came here and worked with him for several years before I went on my own. So uh, Seamus is definitely uh, one of the more colorful characters, of course, in our industry here, especially if anyone has done business here in Asia would obviously know of him. But now he is venturing into the U.S., um, and there's one world sport. So obviously you guys, I'm sure must've known each other still from your ESPN or ESS days. Um, how do you end up in that, uh, in that new outfit and talk about it? So, yeah, I mean, I knew Seamus pro serve quite honestly. All oh, right. Okay. That long back. Right. Yeah. He, I mean, and he was a CSI. Correct. He was CSI. Correct. They were doing the same thing. But anyway, so he wanted to launch a, a, tar, a channel targeted to Asians in the U.S. and and asked me if if what my thoughts were and if I'd be interested in doing it. And I said, well, you need a lot of live content because that's the only thing that's going to get – that's going to resonate with the MVPDs in this market. Live, um, live content is what you said. Live content. Right. And okay. so and not necessarily content out of Asia. Right. So – Anyway, this is sort of a similar situation to, I mean, the, it was produced and not very well out of Singapore and then sent back to the U.S. Mm. through IP, delivery through one of the companies. There are sort of five companies in this, in this group. Mm. And so I went and I hired Joel Feld, who was a longtime guy at ABC Sports, and it was the, the head programming guy, Nesson, um, to help me put all this stuff together. And then I hired Randy Brown, who was at ESPN with me to run all my distribution. And, you know, I, I will tell you that Randy is, I don't find, there's nobody better in the distribution space in the U.S. than Randy Brown. He was unbelievable. So we, there were, I think the, they had two deals and, and distribution deals in the U.S. And by the time we ended up selling it. We had close to 70. Right. And these are affiliate deals, right? Is what you're talking about here. Affiliate deals. Yeah. And so we took, we brought all of the production to the U.S. and we went to Encompass in Stanford and we basically produced everything out of Stanford. And okay. we didn't do anything in the studio. We did everything pretty much off tube. We also brought in commentary from other locations. So, for example, we bought the ECB rights 
and we use all skies production, which is, which is tremendous. We had things like the the CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association, the Chinese Super League. We had the KHL out of Russia, um, and we did all that. We did you know things like that. We would do in Stanford, but again off tube with not a, a studio presence. The NASL, and then we also brought in the club channels. We did a deal with IMG to do, bring in the club channels of Chelsea, Arsenal. Okay. Bayern Munich, AC Milan, you know, which were basically, they were one day delay or six hour delay in some cases of that content, but it was good brand name content. And the the amount of live content that we had on the, at One World was really, again, the catalyst that got us as many distribution deals as we did. And it was well produced and the brand was great. Our interstitials were great. Um, You know, Joel did a great job putting the whole thing together and you know and in terms of your, the demographics you, you you know obviously you said asian asian the asian community in asia in the u.s uh, that could either be people there live there grown there you know grew up there or or moved there um but let's define that a bit more is it you know the indian market would be fairly obvious that you need cricket for them but you know someone out of china doesn't care about cricket neither does the japanese or someone from southeast asia so how do you define that further down to you know really target that audience how, how do you guys do that well every cable operator is looking i mean obviously they have a need to be able to serve that audience and when you have as much live content as we had i mean look i, I looked at it not as a as a sport as, sorry as a channel targeted to Asians, to the Asian diaspora, if I can, and which I use that term loosely, it's an international sports channel. Right. Of, okay. There are normal things that you can't see. So the World Table Tennis Championships, the, uh, you know, some of the other things that I Batman, referenced, et cetera, in, right. okay. in, 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 coming in and playing, but with, with very, very strong production value. And and so what was happening, the dynamic that we had, Marcus, was this, was that ESPN at the time, a lot of these entities would go to ESPN and they'd, and ESPN said, well, we'll get you on SportsCenter. And then they would take, they would cut a deal with them and they put it on the shelf and never to be seen, never to see the light of day again. Mm-hmm. And we basically said, look, we're going to make you our Super Bowl. And we did. We promoted it. We, 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 you know, we put the production value in. We created the interstitials. And that's how we got a lot of that content. Now, this was before the streaming had started. Right. And then we we also had a – there was also a shift from the MVPDs to, to bundling. So, for example, they'll go and cut a deal with the Walt Disney Company and take 15 channels or they'll take 11 channels from Discovery. So standalone – Channels are a very tough putt on MVPDs at this point, mm-hmm. but because we're sports and we're live, and we were able to get carriage and also get paid. And unfortunately, we just you know the market moved for us, and and we didn't weren't able to get uh, as many deals were required predicated upon what the investment that was being made by our shareholders. Mm. And, you know, basically our shareholders decide that they need to sell the business and, and that's what we did. And it was, it was, it was a very tough one for me because I loved, I think out of all the things that I've done, I mean, ESPN and ESS were the, was obviously heads and tails above everything else, but this was right behind it because we had such great people. We basically, it was like the Phoenix rising from the ashes. We had great content, 
it, it, it looked great. We had great reception from the cable operators. We were priced right. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. Mm. Yeah, I remember. We I think we had a couple of deals with you guys as well. I can't remember actually for what content, but it might have been one of those sort of either table tenders or badminton, which we represented at the time. Um, now, you know, to, did the business ever make money or was it sort of – or it was sort of no, it we was were, on its way there? Or? No, we were – we had made – you know, a bunch of changes on the expense side to get us to, uh, you know, closer to profitability, but we were not making money. And, and look, at the end of the day, we needed more deals and we needed more time and we just didn't have it. And, uh, uh, 11 is the one who bought it, right? So Andrea, that's correct, right? How, how, when, when was that? When did that happen or or how recent is that we're talking about here? That happened in 2017. Right. Okay. So pretty much when when uh, when you left then, right? Okay, got it. We sold it. We sold it, and I wound it up. And um, okay. And then I'm left. I was just gonna say. In. So the the brand doesn't exist anymore. The or the the platform. Uh, they incorporated into eleven, and okay. um, I mean, I, I you know, candidly, I don't think eleven's here any longer. You know, they're trying to to figure. Unfortunately, we had we had a bake off, and you know. I, it, uh, I think it, it didn't go down as well as you'd like it. Yeah, I think you mentioned something like this last time. In the other, in the hands of the other bidder, I think it would still be around. But but it is what it is. I mean, you know, it's just unfortunately that's the uh, way these things life goes on. And that, in your case, was Major League Lacrosse. Now you had mentioned very early in the conversation that you played lacrosse, right? I think it what was it, university or. Um, and now you're coming here and you, you're becoming the, the commissioner of Major League Recross, which is obviously what you've now done here for the last several years. Uh, let's talk a bit about that before we, of course, get into what you're going to be doing here going forward here. So how was – how you know, clearly you seem to – you obviously have a passion for the sport. Um, and now you are on the sporting side of it rather than on the you know broadcaster or the, the other side of the business here. So talk a bit about it. Well, I played um, I played Division One in college, and I played in the predecessor uh, league of MLL, and uh, and it's always been a passion for me. And I was recruited to do it. There was a turnaround. I went to, of course, I went to Stern and talked to him a lot about this before, and he told me I had three heads for doing it. I, I mean, we had a situation where we had, you know, we had eleven teams. We had. One owner had six and a half of the eleven votes. We didn't have our media rights. We had a uh, we had something in this thing where we had the um, this called founding member, where the four founding members of the league had a call option on the next seventy five percent of our next five franchise fees. So someone said, "What are you? Why are you doing this?" Right, right. So and, not, not well structured, basically. Is what you're saying? You know, I laid all this stuff out for Stern. And he, that's why he gave me the reaction he did. But look, we we. Um, the, the league had been around for 20 years. I, I can't tell you that it was managed in the right fashion from previous management. So it was a, very much of a turnaround, and we did that, actually. We put a three-year plan in, I guess, after the first. We put that in probably th- three months after I got there, um, which, interestingly enough, is the basis for a, a lot of what's happened now with PLL. And um, so I, I was able to get it down to one owner, one vote. I got all of our media rights back and immediately cut a deal with ESPN and got rid of this founding member thing. All the while, year into this thing, we have a competitor league that shows up. 
right. which one of our players was at the center of. And, and so we had to manage that. And, you know, I, I had, uh, unfortunately, a lot of owners that just had been there way too long. And, and so, you know, one thing led to another. We, we, you know, we also had to deal with the COVID situation like everybody else. Well, we, we also had the benefit of sports gambling, which started to show up. So we started to get involved in that. And we had some really good traction with MGM to actually, do, you know, we had a, sort of an agreement in principle to do a uh, our all-star game on the strip. GSBM was going to televise and, you know, MGM was going to front it. And it just would have been a great thing for the sport all the way around. But it is here again. It's an, look for me. It was another experience. It was, um, I you know, as I said to Stern, I said, now I know why you get paid the big bucks, having to deal with all the different things we had to deal with. And I mean, COVID didn't help. Having a competitive league didn't help. There are, you know, a number of things that that transpired. But I'm sat, happy to say that we did turn it around. We did get a great television deal, and we were end up merging it with PLL, which has been backed by Josiah. Uh, in particular, and um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens on that basis. All right. Okay. So that that is sort of where where U.S. sort of handing it over now, right? As as the the two emerging. We did that. We we closed the deal a year ago, and then I wound the entity up and just left, and you know, I, I let everybody go a year ago, and then I just had to. There's a lot of things that had to get done to wind it up, which I did, and I was in Boston for five years, uh, for those five years, and then. Um, at the beginning of April, I effectively launched my own sort of put out, hung out my own shingle, my own sort of sports consultancy to really f- focus on sports media. And, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that a bit. Um, it's called Poshando, or how do you pronounce how do I pronounce it properly? That, that's my that was Poshan Road was my was where I lived in Hong Kong. Oh, right. So okay. Do is Cantonese was Road, so Poshando. So I, I mean, it was just a just something I came up with as more of a placeholder, and it's really more just. I have a I have a a client in India, and I have a client in Israel right now, and obviously looking to add to the roster. But you know, just trying to help open doors here in this in this country, and also in other places if I can. Well, you know, obviously you, you, we went just went through it over the last hour plus here um, with your huge experience in media, and uh, you know, a little bit sprinkled over a few other things. Um, you, know, you know, so obviously that's I'm sure what your focus is uh, back in it. But at the same time, you know, we we obviously the world has changed dramatically. Right? We we don't have as much of the let's call it traditional pay TV. There is. And, you know, there's the the OTT models. There is, a, you know, all sorts of other models are coming constantly, coming and going. Uh, and last time we had an interesting conversation about, you know, how you know ARPU uh, versus sub cyber grows and why, you know, how did Netflix valuation just drop so much and maybe where certain analysts and others getting things wrong. Yeah, and I think you had some really interesting thoughts there. You know, just just talk a bit about that. Uh, what you feel. Uh, looking at that world the way it is now, that some people may be looking at it in the from the wrong lens. Well, I mean, look, it, it's. I mean, when you when you when you get right down to it, I mean, ultimately, it's what revenue are you going to drive, and what's the quality of that? You know, one question that always comes out is, what's the quality of those subscribers? And in this case, what's the revenue that you have associated against these subscribers, and then what is your your cost to be able to acquire them? 
I think that's one of the real questions that Wall Street's asking right now of Disney in terms of this IPL deal. Are they going to, you know, the last deal went for two and a half for $2.7 billion and it'll probably go for six and a half plus. Wow. That's the number you hear. And that's 10 uh, years then, is it? Is it t- that's still five, is five, five, year five year. Wow. Six million plus five years. Oh, nice. And so what is that? What is that cost going to be? to acquire those subscribers and then what are you getting back in terms of revenue so just for also for the non non cricket fans IPL stands for the Indian Premier League and that is the Indian Cricket League uh, so those are some significant numbers there well i mean Moffin Nathan came out with something basically saying that that if disney were to pay that kind of money it's about 120 bucks for every disney plus subscriber and it's going to take them 13 years to get that money back But ultimately, as I keep coming back to it, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And when we bought the rights of the BCCI to get to basically launch the business in India, we and and by the way, when we made our our acquisition decisions at ESS, everything was done on a P and L basis. So we looked at we didn't even look at the subscription element. We just looked at the advertising, and if we can break even on advertising, then everything else is gravy. Mm -hmm. But now, when you when you buy rights and this has been going on for years. You know, obviously, you've got to come up with certain assumptions in terms of what the the subscription contribution is going to be and so forth. And, I mean, ultimately, that's a decision that anybody's got to make when they buy content. But I, and in the case of these streaming services, um, I mean, it's just crazy when you think about the fact that the Walt Disney Company is going to spend over $30 billion in content for to, to service all of its video business, including streaming. I mean, that's just a huge number. But then again, you think about the NFL rights that just, I mean, they just took another, with the renewal of those deals, I guess they went from 5 billion plus a year to over 10 billion plus a year, and that doesn't even include Sunday ticket. So that's why it's really important to make sure that when you think about these other markets and you're growing the subscriber base, Obviously, you've got to think about okay. Well, what's the number? What's the you know what what's the revenue? What's your ARPU going to be in each one of these situations? What you called ARPU blend, right? Which is what you were talking about earlier. How Just you example? I, you go back to ESPN, where you got a you got a dollar out of Southeast Asia, you got a penny out of China, and you've got five cents out of yeah. India. Look at that region. You just blend all that together, and that's where you really have to. You've got to look at it and say, okay, well, what's the quality of those subscribers in terms of the top line, in terms of revenue? And that's what I think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't. I think Netflix has a flat pol- uh, uh, price policy globally. I, I think it's the same amount anywhere in the world, as far as I'm at least seen. Um, I may be wrong now, but uh, and that it always, I, I to me, it always puzzles me a little bit uh, why they wouldn't change that uh, in countries where. There is a population who might not be able easily afford that, as you may be able to charge in the U.S. So, uh, in a, again, seems to be a bit of an odd one, if unless they've changed that already. But I, that's the last time I looked at it, at least. Well, if you're a public market company, then you've obviously got to play a bit of a different game, and obviously you've got to look at valuation and you know where you're spending that money, you know where you're spending, what are your content costs, and where are you spending them, and all that kind of thing, and. Ultimately, you're going to have to play to Wall Street to you know a fair degree, but 
I mean, look, as these, these streaming services are continuing to gain traction, certainly here in this country, you know, you've seen cord cutting. So in the U.S., you're, I mean, I think from a sports and news perspective, the estimate's probably 58 million is, uh, in terms of the four. You know, the number is, the number of homes for ESPN, for example, has come down from sort of in the high 90 millions in the last five years down to, I think, they're probably 78 million. Right. And... And that's just the way it is. And what's happening is, is that the entertainment consumers are leaving the cable bundle, and then you just the cable bundle is left to its core sports consumers, and that's probably where your four is going to be somewhere in sort of you know the you know close to sixty million. Interesting. Now maybe just a sort of last couple of thoughts here as we wrap it up. Um, you know, you got the zone out there again, um, having you know dipped their toes into all sort of things um, in the U.S. with boxing, you know, and somebody around the world with boxing. And then you have, of course, you know, they launched a couple of platforms. Um, Japan is sort of, you know, they restructured their deal there. From you know what you read, uh, you got eleven with a. Again, slightly different business model there is out. I mean, everyone is everyone sees it. Everyone, you know, and for the very, very you know, a couple of years ago, we all called it you know the Netflix of sports, which you know no one has really pulled off in that sense, um, or maybe ever will. But uh, what, what do you see? I mean, where do you see is that going? And you know, ESPN Plus and others, as you said, you know, now throwing a lot of money at things and moving their um, what is it where, you know, from your 20, 30 years here in this industry now, uh, where do you see what, who's going to come out of the winner, which is probably hard to predict anyway right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I certainly can't make that uh, prediction of who's going to win here. I mean, I think, look, I think that clearly content is going to be is critically important. you got to have the right content in each one of these markets. And I, I can just go back to another example of years ago when ESPN owned a third of Eurosport. You know, they didn't make the decision to go and acquire Syria in Italy or Bundesliga in, in you know, in Germany because at the end of the day, they didn't. It just they didn't have the money to do it. It was too. It was prohibitive. Hmm. But driver content is is always going to be paramount in every one of these markets, and whether right. it's boxing or whether you're going into Japan, you're gonna, you know, you're buying, um, you know, you're buying the baseball or. Uh, you know, wherever it is, or cricket in India, <laughs> cricket in India, and this in the case of the U.S., the NFL, yeah. which certainly Amazon has looked at that as putting it on the basically is giving it a leg into the into the subscription business, and this is what what the NFL drove Fox, and it had a big, you know, it was a very big catalyst for ESPN. Right. So every market has these things, and this right. is where. Someone's got to make a decision about what it is they're going to spend and where they're going to spend their money. And then, obviously, if they can, now that you're in a situation where impressions get aggregated in so many different ways, can you make it work from an advertising perspective? So ultimately, you've got a business. And those are all key considerations when one considers launching services in, in any particular market. The good news is there are a lot of different, there are a lot more ways where you can make money, you know, whether it's programmatic advertising. Now you have the whole gambling piece of this. That's a whole nother set of dynamics. It's, yep. But it's all about aggregating impressions from that perspective. And then obviously being able to have content that people are going to be willing to pay for. 
absolutely. No, I, I think I like that. It's it's a good way to finish off uh, that it's really about the content is the key part, but then at the end of the day, it is how you monetize it, right? And as you rightly just said, there is so many new ways of monetizing it. Um, the live is always still going to be a big important part, but of course, there's clips, there's other, you know, short form, there's NFTs, there's the gaming gambling part of it, um, there's other gamification parts to it. So I think that's where we all see, of course, and I'm sure you and I read the same stuff every day. Uh, where we see the industry setting, and um, I'm sure we'll have some more conversation about it. But uh, Sanya, this was fun. It was a good hour and a half here of this amazing careers of yours um, across the world, um, now back in the U.S. So I'm sure we'll hear more from you, and I'm sure others who will listen to this, um, if they need some help with some of this, uh, these new ideas and channels around the world, uh, you, they know you're the guy to call. Well, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun, and and uh, I appreciate the, the the opportunity to chat, Marcus. I mean, you know, it's the, as I said at the outset, it's all about the people, and um, you know, you you were in in that fabric. Obviously, it's uh, look, it's a great business, and it's fun to see the the ebbs and the flows over the years, and and obviously, long after we're gone, it'll still doing it will continue to do the same thing. So. Um, but it has been a lot of fun. I will say that. Absolutely. We'll, we'll continue to have fun with it. So, Dandy, have a good day there in Baltimore. Your day is just starting. Mine is winding down here. So, um, and we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks, Marcus. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.